When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Nicaragua's presidential election isn't until November, but what will shape it has been happening over the past week. President Daniel Ortega's challengers are being arrested on trumped-up charges, and the international community is at last weighing in. And in Jordan, roaming vendors selling natural gas cylinders advertise their approach in an unusual and noisy way. We take a listen to the ubiquitous gas truck jingles. First up, though. Across Southeast Asia, governments are finding new uses for age-old laws on treason, blasphemy, and sedition to keep their critics quiet online. Leaders in Singapore, Malaysia, Myanmar, and Cambodia are imposing novel regulations or cutting off Internet access entirely. Now, Indonesia has joined the trend. New legislation orders online platforms to remove so-called prohibited content from their sites within as little as four hours of it going up. Companies had until last week to comply, though that deadline has now been extended by six months. How, or indeed whether, content providers follow the law could set a standard for online censorship across Asia. Indonesia is Southeast Asia's biggest, most robust democracy. It might have been expected to buck this trend towards digital censorship. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent and is based in Singapore. But instead, the country is succumbing to kind of knee-jerk authoritarianism, as are many of its neighbors. So that's really worrying for the whole region. And tell me a bit about this new law in Indonesia. What exactly does it stipulate? Well, it's called Ministerial Regulation Number 5, or MR5 for short. So the government is really worried about misinformation and disinformation on Indonesia's internet. As the government put it, the law is supposed to preserve and protect the country. But because of the many flaws with this law, a lot of people think actually it's really designed chiefly to preserve and protect the government. The law applies to what it calls private sector electronic system operators. And it requires these companies to register with the government, to remove content that the government deems prohibited, and also turn over sensitive information. So these companies could include social media platforms, search engines, cloud computing services. But one of the problems with this law is that the wording is super vague, and critics worry that that makes it ripe for misuse. So one journalist I spoke to is really worried that this could have a devastating impact on her profession. Because if electronic system operators are deemed to include online media websites, they may be required to register 
and potentially order to take down stories that the government just doesn't like. And so what exactly counts as prohibited content then? That is a good question. The law defines it as anything that violates Indonesian law, incites unrest, or disturbs public order. So when the communications ministry issues a takedown notice, firms have to comply with that request within 24 hours or four hours when it comes to certain types of prohibited content. So child pornography, material that promotes terrorism, or, quote, content which disturbs society. And what meets that definition then? What would disturb society? The wording is very vague, but if we look to the past, history shows that the government is interested in removing content, which is critical of it. A law passed in 2008, which was ostensibly to protect digital consumers, is commonly used to silence critics of the government. In 2019, the government throttled the internet in Jakarta, the capital, in response to riots that were ginned up by a defeated presidential candidate. The communications ministry frequently orders internet service providers to block websites it deems false or indecent, among them gay dating apps like Grindr. So will the various platforms, tech companies, content providers, however they're more precisely defined, actually play along here? Will there be pushback? I think it's likely. They're they're certainly not happy. The Asia Internet Coalition, which represents big tech companies like Google, Facebook, and Apple, has said that MR5 is deeply concerning. They don't think it will be possible to comply with the requirement to remove material within 24 hours, let alone four And if companies don't comply with those orders, they'll be whacked with a big fine or even have their websites blocked. And they're also worried that because the penalties are so stiff and the law is so vague, there's a big chance that companies will effectively self-censor to stay on the right side of the law. And there's another headache. MR5 requires companies to give law enforcement agencies direct access to their systems and data. What that means in practice is not clear. But it would likely expose these platforms to all manner of legal and business risks. One thing that the Asia Internet Coalition has raised is that how can they be sure that the devices used by the government to access their systems and data are secure? The government would also be entitled to access user data. And so that raises really big privacy concerns. And as you say, Indonesia is one of the region's most healthy democracies. I mean, how does this law look relative to what's going on elsewhere in the region? It's very much in keeping with what we're seeing elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Two years ago, Singapore passed a law banning what it calls online falsehoods, a.k.a. fake news. Malaysia did the same thing just last month. Some governments are more heavy-handed. Cambodia, for instance, plans to set up a government-controlled gateway through which all internet traffic would have to pass. Myanmar has been even worse. It's choked off access to the internet in response to the mass protests that have gripped the country in the wake of the coup there. So we see this wave of digital censorship sweeping through Asia. Citizens of those countries and tech platforms around the world are going to be watching these changes very closely. Thanks very much for joining us, Charlie. Thank you, Jason. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. American officials have labeled the president of Nicaragua a dictator after yesterday's arrest of a further two opposition politicians who have been accused of plotting against the country's sovereignty. They were detained under a controversial new security law passed in December by the government of President Daniel Ortega. The arrests were all but expected, and they're not the first. Mr. Ortega clearly has his thumb on the scales well ahead of a presidential election in November. So yesterday, two more opposition presidential candidates were arrested in Nicaragua. Ana Lenkas writes about Central American affairs for The Economist. Police arrested Félix Maradiaga, who is part of the Unidad Azul y Blanco, one of the two main opposition umbrella groups, as well as Juan Sebastián Chamorro, the cousin of Cristiana Chamorro, who was arrested on June 2nd. Along with them, the police arrested Violeta Granera, who is also a member of Unidad Azul y Blanco, and José Agueri, the ex-head of the National Superior Council of Private Companies. So it was a, it was a big night, Tuesday the 8th. And you say that these are not the first seemingly politically motivated arrests. That's right. So on June 2nd, Cristiana Chamorro was placed under house arrest. She is the cousin of Juan Sebastián Chamorro, who was arrested yesterday as well. Both of them hail from one of Nicaragua's most famous political families that, that, have had, that has had um, six presidents since 1850. So this week, um, like I said, she was placed under house arrest after police raided her home, and she hasn't been heard of since. They confiscated all of her electronic devices And a judge later authorized the extraction of all the material they contain. She was arrested a day after she announced her plans to run in the election in November and register as a candidate for Citizens for Freedom, which is the main opposition party in Nicaragua. Before her arrest, she said she was being hounded by the government because the president, Daniel Ortega, is afraid. She said he was dying of fear. And then on June 5th, Arturo Cruz, another presidential hopeful, was detained. And on June 7th, placed under house arrest arbitrarily. He's being held for 90 days. So in the last 10 days, um, four presidential candidates, opposition presidential candidates, have been arrested um, or targeted in different ways by Daniel Ortega. And so these are the kinds of tactics that one might expect from, from President Ortega? Very much so. Daniel Ortega first came to power as the leader of a Marxist guerrilla movement in 1979. He was elected in 1984 and then was unseated in 1990. But he came back in 2007 and has been in power since then. So he's seeking a fourth consecutive term. And he has done all sorts of things in the last decade and a half to maintain his grip on power. And that includes, for example, holding elections widely considered fraudulent in 2016, ordering a crackdown on anti-regime demonstrators in 2018 that left perhaps 450 people dead. Some local associations put that number much higher at 568. It also led to 87,000 people going into exile in one of the bloodiest crackdowns in Latin American history for three decades. So 
this fits a pattern of the dictatorship of Ortega Murillo, but it's become quite severe in the past few months. How do you mean? So in October, the Organization of American States, which is a regional body, passed a resolution calling for free and fair elections in Nicaragua and kind of outlining the steps that Nicaragua would need to take to ensure that those elections would take place. And instead of following those guidelines, Ortega has kind of done the exact opposite. So in the last few months, for example, the regime has passed three bills that seek to stamp out the opposition. One of those is a foreign agents bill, which targets NGOs that receive international funding. And this law was actually used to shut down the Press Freedom Foundation that Cristiana Chamorro used to lead. Another law bans kind of very, very loosely defined traitors from running for office. And under the definition that they provide, basically the regime can deem who is a traitor and then just bar them from running for office. And actually Arturo Cruz is the first person to be prosecuted under that law. A third law, the cybersecurity law, mandates long prison sentences for anyone accused of spreading fake news. And all three of those laws are basically seen as just targeting the opposition. More recently, since May, an electoral council was chosen that is just made up of Ortega loyalists. And laws were passed that allowed the police to shut down political campaign events and party meetings. So the repression has really increased in the past month, but it's been coming for a while now. And the Biden administration has labeled Mr. Ortega a dictator in response to yesterday's arrests. More broadly, what's the international response been to to all this cracking down? So especially from 2018, because it was just such a bloody crackdown that the international community was obviously forced to react. So at least 27 individuals in the Ortega government have been sanctioned, as well as nine entities, such as the National Police, that are linked to the crackdown in 2018. And since then, there have been proposals to expand sanctions. And this March, some senators in the U.S. Congress introduced a bill called the Renacker Act to expand sanctions against Nicaraguan individuals. However, Nicaragua hasn't faced as much international pressure as its long-term benefactor, for example, Venezuela, which is much more of an international pariah. And there are broader sanctions on Venezuela that target the entire oil industry. Nicaragua doesn't have a similar industry, and it doesn't have as much like a pariah status as Venezuela. So, for example, last year, the IMF agreed to loan the country $185 million to help it tackle COVID and also to help it reconstruct after two very severe hurricanes. Also, only two and a half weeks ago, the Central American Bank for Economic Integration increased its investments in the country. And and what about the electorate? How do you think this election will actually go if, in fact, any opposition candidates are left standing? So at least right now, it seems that Ortega might be shooting himself in the foot. Because, for example, on May 18th, his party banned one of two main opposition parties from running in the election, which leaves just one legitimate opposition party standing, which is Citizens for Freedom. That means that the opposition, which has been notoriously fractured since 2018, is being forced to coalesce behind a single party. So through his actions, Ortega is actually helping the opposition do what it hasn't been able to achieve in three years, which is unite. Anna, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. There are few joys in life like hearing the jingle of an ice cream truck approaching on a warm, sunny day. Okay, maybe the music isn't for everyone, but at least the sound doesn't blast out at the crack of dawn every single day. 
is a tinny electronic version of For Elise by Beethoven. It's a sound that wakes up a whole lot of groggy Jordanians. Elise Burr writes about foreign affairs for The Economist. Trucks that sell gas cylinders drive around blasting the tune, selling gas in the style of an ice cream van. So residents who need gas flag down the trucks when they hear the sound. How is it that the fur release became the signal that gas is near? Up until the late 1990s, gas truck drivers alerted their customers either by clanging their keys against the gas cylinders or just by honking really loudly. After receiving a bunch of complaints, the government and the fuel syndicate agreed to replace this loud honking with a so-called relaxing kind of music. But Fur Elise is actually only one of two main tunes that the gas trucks play. Do you want to hear the other one? You know that I do. That one doesn't sound any easier to wake up to in the morning. I mean, what do the Jordanian public think about this practice? Well, some people think it's a part of Jordan's rich soundtrack, but others just think it's noise pollution. In April, the Energy and Minerals Regulatory Commission put out a poll asking some 10,000 Jordanians how they felt about it. 27% said they'd prefer to just phone the gas company and arrange a delivery. 53% said they'd like to order through a smartphone app, but one doesn't exist yet. Only 20% of people actually like the current system. So have there been any efforts to change the jingle? In 2009, two artists, Sama Hijawi and Johnny Amore, got the tune changed for a week to something more Jordanian-sounding under an EU-funded art project. But it didn't have much buy-in from drivers and didn't permanently change the tune. One problem is that drivers just didn't play the new sound because they were worried that people would buy less gas because they didn't recognize it. And so as it exists then, annoying though it might be, does that system work? Does everybody that needs gas get gas? Well, the music isn't the only complaint. Customers don't really have a recourse if given a faulty cylinder because they usually can't remember who sold it to them. And just some people aren't fast enough to flag down the trucks before they drive away. And what's your take having heard these? Would you stand for this going by at volume of a morning? Personally, I like the music, but I also sleep with earplugs in. Elise, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you'd like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. 
That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.